At this time, we also want to dismiss the children to Children's Church, so ask the children to come forward by the piano. And Pastor Seth is going to teach us from the Word this morning. Thanks, John. Would you please open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 10? If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 684. Isaiah chapter 10. You know how when you get on a roller coaster, you feel safe? Yeah. Uh, You've had 10 or 20 minutes in line. You've seen groups of people get on the roller coaster and go around and scream and yell, and then they get off and they're laughing and they're joking about it. And uh, that one uh, hairy sort of turn that you're kind of worried about, you've been able to watch the car go around it. You see the tracks are strong. Everybody screams, but, but it's okay. And the operator seems kind of bored. Doesn't look like he's expecting to see anything exciting. Seems like he's done this for a long time. You realize that this roller coaster has been operating all morning long. Hasn't been closed down yet. And uh, you get in your seat. The bar gets put on your lap. You feel tight and snug and secure. And it starts to move sort of slowly and go up a very steep incline. And this is okay. You feel safe. And then it happens. The tracks disappear from under the car. And you start plummeting down towards the earth like you're going to bore a hole into the ground. And then there's this gut-wrenching turn. That's where we are today in the book of Isaiah. Over the last few weeks, Jeremy's been uh, preaching a series in Isaiah, focusing on the theme, Trust God. In the midst of of a terrible uh, political and military conflict and crisis that Judah and Jerusalem are surrounded by, the message keeps coming. God will deliver. God will protect. Keep trusting God. But now comes the turn. Because God says, I will discipline you. And you're going to experience a terrible trial like nothing you've experienced before. Yes, I will deliver you. But it's going to be, he says in in Isaiah chapter 8, like a flood that comes all the way up to the very neck and comes so close that Judah and Jerusalem are almost drowned and lost. And so we've got to trust God. We've got to hang on around these turns because it's going to be uh, a harrowing ride. So, Isaiah chapter 10, we're we're looking at verses 5 through 19. And what happens here is the, the king of Assyria is coming down and he's taking over nation after nation, capital after capital, and he's headed for Jerusalem and he's going to come. And so what, what happens in this, in, in this passage is that the king of Assyria is building his case and he's boasting about his track record and his abilities and all that he's going to do when he gets down to Jerusalem. And it looks like Jerusalem is finished and then everything turns and there's a change. And then God comes in and starts to act. And he says he's going to bring that king of Assyria down. So let's just dive in. Isaiah chapter 10 and uh, looking at verses 5 and 6 and see uh, again the same message that we need to trust God. 
that we need to hang on uh, even though there's this discipline coming upon God's people. So the, the section starts with where it's going to end. It starts with the finish because it begins, Woe to the Assyrian. Woe to the king of Assyria. And you've got to hold on to that phrase. You've got to hang on to it because you're not going to come back to that for a while as we, as we move ahead. But where the passage is going is that it's going to be bad for the king of Assyria. But the way it's going to get there is it's going to be pretty tough for us. It's going to be pretty tough for the people of God. It's going to be tough for Judah and Jerusalem. So woe to the Assyrian. The rod of my anger in whose hand is the club of my wrath. And what we see here is that God is using the king of Assyria. The godless are sent on God's mission. Evil people are sent for God's purpose. God uses those who are unrighteous to accomplish his designs against his own chosen people. And it's a mysterious thing. It's an amazing thing. It's a shocking thing. But this is what God says he's doing. The Assyrian is the rod of God's anger. In his hand is the club of God's wrath. So when this Assyrian king comes striking, there's a supernatural power that enables him to strike with, with superhuman strength. And Jerusalem's going to feel it. And it's going to be hard. It's the club of God's wrath that's in his hand. And then verse 6, God says, I send him. He's on a mission from God. I send him, this king of Assyria, against a godless nation. I dispatch him against a people who anger me. Now, who would that be? Well, he's sending the king of Assyria against Judah and Jerusalem. You find that in verses 11 and 12. Verse 12, uh, the king is going to finish all of God's work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem. And so the people who anger God, the godless nation, is God's chosen people. And God is angry with them because of their sin. And so he's sending this godless king of Assyria to accomplish his work of discipline against his people. And here's what the, the work is. Here's what the assignment is at the end of verse 6. To seize loot and snatch plunder, to trample them down like mud in the streets. In other words, to bring them down, to humble them, to make them destitute, to, uh, to make them miserable in a way that they've never been before, to take away property, take over land, and uh, make things tough, but not to destroy the nation. At least, uh, that's not the plan at this point. Now, the question is, why does God do things like this? Why does God use evil people and send godless people to accomplish his tasks? And I, I think the first thing that I want to say as we answer that is to tell you that God really does do that. Would you take out your sermon handout in your bulletin there, this paper that says Isaiah at the top? And on the front are a number of uh, verses from different places in the Bible that I've put together that do make this point that God uses evil events and evil people to accomplish his holy purposes. Uh, starting off at the end of Genesis, Genesis 50, verse 20. 
what I like to call the punchline of the book of Genesis. Some words from the mouth of Joseph, a man in the book of Genesis who suffered as an innocent person. And uh, you know, the, the book of Genesis deals with how God is at work in a world that is sinful and chaotic and full of evil, but God is at work making wonderful things happen, showing mercy, showing love, and reigning in holiness despite all the chaos in the world. And so at the end of Genesis, uh, Joseph's brothers come to him and they're begging for mercy and protection because now he's the ruler of the the whole land and uh, he's been made king. But they're the guys who sold him into slavery. They're the reason he got down to Egypt in the first place. So they're asking for, for mercy and protection. And Joseph says, don't worry, you guys. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. You planned to do me in, but God was planning your plan for something good that you didn't know about, something good that I didn't know about. God's the one who's in charge. God's in control. So God uses evil to accomplish good. Uh, look down the next to the last one there uh, from Acts chapter 4. And as the, the saints are praying in Jerusalem, as the church is praying in Jerusalem, they, they recite to God the background of the events of their persecution. And they say, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Evil was used for the greatest good for our salvation. Uh, the pagan king, King Nebuchadnezzar, discovered the same thing, that God works everything out according to his holy plan. Uh, look at this quote from Daniel 4. Uh, king Nebuchadnezzar confessing God's power and reign. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So God indeed does use evil people. He sends the godless on his mission. But why? And the reason why is because plan A didn't work. And God is following plan B. Plan A was to send the righteous to go into the world and to be a model, to be a display, to be a light for the nations and to teach righteousness to the world. And plan A is the best plan. It's to raise up Israel. It's to raise up the church of Jesus Christ and make them a light for the nations. But many times plan A fails because the people don't trust God. The people don't love God. They love other things. They turn away in all kinds of false directions. They get filled with idolatry. They, be, they become disobedient. Uh, as Isaiah says, they have eyes but do not see ears but do not hear. And so God goes to plan B and he picks, he picks the evil and the godless and sends them to discipline and teach and wake up and arouse his, his uh, lazy, lethargic, sleeping people. Have you ever uh, experienced plan B 
Have you ever had bad people do bad things to you? You know, we, we know that God is at work and that He always does good things through it, but it takes a very long perspective to be able to see any good when bad people do bad things to us. Uh, I, I have a, a little bit of an experience with it. Uh, maybe this, this helps a little bit. When I, was, when I was growing up, I had two older brothers. And, uh, you know, they were, they were sort of merciless in their, uh, you, know, they, they, you know, sibling rivalry. You know, they were fighting against each other. And they were much older than I was. And here I was, this young little punk. And I don't know if there's something about me, but they just loved to, to heap abuse on me. And, uh, you know, even they, and with their hard hearts, the time came when they went off to college. And, uh, you know, they got a little more mature and they got some perspective on how they behaved when they were teenagers. And each of them came to me independently. This is just to illustrate, you know, the extent of things. Each of them came to me independently and apologized for, <laughs> you know, for the abuse that they, you know, the way they would tease me and torment me when, when I was a kid and just sort of string me along and bait me and, and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I, of course I said, you know, it's fine, you know, I forgive you and whatever, you know, it's, it's okay. But, you know... It was really hard to go through as a kid. And it's an experience that shaped my life. Uh-huh, so that's why Seth has all these problems. <laughs> um, you know, I figure I don't have any problems that a little denial won't cover. But um, what, what it has done is it's taught me compassion. Because, you know, I've been in that situation where, you know, someone's got to see my side in this. Someone's got to feel for me. And you look around and there isn't an eye that sees it. And you realize that it's important to feel for people. And uh, it's something that's, uh, that's worked very deep into my heart because of those experiences. And uh, so God is using it in my life, even now in my family and uh, in relationships. Uh, those experiences that I had that were very hard, that were very negative, that were very evil. God uses evil to accomplish good. People mean it for evil, but God means it for good. God uses his plan B. Uh, I want us to look here in, uh, if you take out the sermon handout again, look at how throughout the Bible, the people of God struggle with this problem that God uses evil to accomplish his good purposes. And here I have some excerpts from the book of Habakkuk. He's one of the prophets in the Old Testament. A short little book. And he struggles with this problem of God's choice of tools. And uh, here's Habakkuk. He starts with, with a complaint. And then God gives him an answer. And of course, then the conversation goes back and forth. Habakkuk's complaint is, uh, it's, a, it's a time later after Isaiah. And his complaint is, God, will you look around? I'm paraphrasing. Will you see Judah and Jerusalem? And the sin that's here. This is supposed to be a righteous people. But as he says in verse 4, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. And uh, it's a desperate situation. Oh God, won't you do something? And God says, and again I'm paraphrasing, hey, Habakkuk, I've got it all under control. I've got a plan. You won't believe this. I've got a plan all set up. Uh, he says, uh, you wouldn't believe it even if you were told. Verse 6, I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. 
They're feared and dreaded. They promote their own honor. God uses plan B. The question is, okay, fine, we understand why God, well, we we maybe don't understand all of why, but we understand, we accept that God uses evil people to accomplish his mission. But why do evil people agree to go on God's mission? Why did godless people agree to go and accomplish God's purposes? They're his enemies. Why would they go on his errand and accomplish his task? And the reason is uh, they don't. They go to accomplish their own purpose. They go to accomplish their own task. And we see that now in verses 7 through 11, that... uh, the wicked, the godless, are going to accomplish their own, mis- their own mission. They're going on their own errand to accomplish their own purpose. And so in, in verse 7, God says, Yes, I've sent him to, uh, to snatch plunder, to seize loot, you know, to discipline my people, to make it hard for them, to teach them a lesson. But, verse 7, this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. So the king of Assyria has his mindset on his success, on his reputation, on his accomplishments, and on what he wants to achieve. His mind is set on his goals and on his mission, and he doesn't care about God's. And yet here he is, he's God's tool. And that's the distinction. He is a tool He is not a servant. A servant has in his mind and in his heart and in his plans to accomplish his master's will. But a tool just does what it does. And it isn't what the... It doesn't, you know, automatically do what the master wants unless it's applied and put into a certain place and given what it needs to accomplish its purpose. You know, a saw cuts in the hands of a master, it cuts well, it cuts fast, it cuts the right thing. But uh, all it can do is cut. So uh, Nebuch- uh, this, uh, this king, Sargon, is, is going to accomplish his own purposes. Um, his mind is filled with his own things, his success. Look in verses 8 through 11. We get a window into his heart, a window into his purposes and his mind. Verse 8, This is what he loves. Are not my commanders all kings? I mean, look at the army that I've got. What I just call a commander or a general, other people would call a king. I mean, he is so powerful, he just goes and makes things happen. He's got realms underneath him. And uh, so God has really blessed the king of Assyria with uh, magnificent power. And that's what he's interested in. And then verse 9 he starts to summarize his past. He's very excited about his, his resume, his achievements, what he's accomplished. And he says, Has not Kalno fared like Karshemish? He starts to list out cities that have been conquered, starting from you know, his home area up there in, near the Euphrates River in present-day Iraq and working down to the west and to the south toward Judah and Jerusalem. You know, has not Kalno fared like Karshemish? Is not Hamath just like Arpad and Samaria like Damascus? 
So he's confident because of his past, and then he's confident, uh, you know, what's in his mind is, is what he's going to accomplish in the future, and all his confidence because of his strength. And so he looks to the future, verses 10 and 11. As my hand sees the kingdoms of the idols, kingdoms whose images excelled those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not deal with Jerusalem and her images as I dealt with Samaria and her idols? So he's filled with his own plan, with his own ideas. Uh, and uh, he's not, his mind isn't filled with the purposes of the one who's using him. Have you ever been used? I had an experience of being used, and I found it very, uh, very upsetting. Uh, we, we were having a, a, um, a little social time together as a staff. We were having lunch together over at Pastor Rich's house. You know, he had gotten his house remodeled, and he wanted to have us all for lunch. And the secretary we had at that time, she was um, not an angel like the secretary we have right now, but uh, she was sort of mischievous. And so she came, Pam came, and she had this, this question. She said, oh, I'm so glad I have all the pastors here. I have this question. And so she, she posed her question to us. And you have to understand that two of us, uh, that would be Pastor Rich and myself, are of a very serious mind. And, you know, when we, when we get a, a serious question presented to us, you know, we take it seriously and we really give it our best shot. Jeremy was sort of in on the joke. So you, you kind of. Um, so she asked this question some about some church somewhere that refused to take tithe money from someone who won this massive lottery winning because the church opposed the lottery. And so it's one of these in and out, you know, ethical questions and everything. And what should they do? And so Rich and I, you know, we, we start tangling on the question. And finally, it starts to, you know, get us going. And, and, you know, you couldn't hear thunder in the room because, you know, we were having this important, you know, high-minded theological discussion. And then we started to notice laughter at the other end of the table. And we realized we'd been used. <laughs> our, our purpose was to solve a, a, an intellectual problem, but her purpose was to get entertainment for, <laughs> for the, uh, the occasion. And we had served that purpose very well, but it wasn't our goal. Now, if a person is able to use another person, isn't God able to use a person? But here's the question. Why? What was the purpose of Al-Qaeda's attack on the Twin Towers and all that destruction? And this is where, it, you know, the, the roller coaster goes for a sharp turn and it gets really hard to deal with. You know, it grates on us to see people celebrating in capitals around the world, celebrating the death of innocent people you know, bystanders, innocent people. It's just the murder of thousands at once. It's so brutal. It's so ugly. How can anybody think that this is something good? And, uh, and you know, this is the goal that these people had, had set out to achieve. And uh, they're boasting about it, just like the king of Assyria, boasting about what he could do and uh, set on his own purpose. But isn't God using the wicked in some kind of plan B? Do we have to really just insist that we're all right and they're all wrong? Are we not able to, to accept that somehow, somehow God is also at work in this humbling us? And we shouldn't harden our hearts and become very proud, but we should humble ourselves. Could it be that God 
has used Al-Qaeda as a tool in his hands to accomplish his person, his, his purpose, against a nation that has, just for one example, murdered an eighth of its population in the last 30 years, legally, professionally, medically, by poisoning them or dismembering them alive through abortion. One out of eight Americans over the last 30 years. Maybe God's humbling us for some of the things that we do. You know, we have great principles. We're a great nation. But we've divorced the principles of freedom and liberty from their foundation, from their source. And we've gone carrying them off in another direction. God have mercy on us. And may we, may we learn the lesson that, he, that perhaps he's teaching us through these humbling events. Well, God, um, God does use the wicked to accomplish his purposes. The wicked are intent on their own purposes and not on God's. But why does God tolerate this? Why does God allow this to go on? Let's look in verses 12 through 15. We see that uh, now the tide turns. And... Uh, while the wicked were able to carry on for a while, God finally says enough. Because what happens is that their, their arrogance begins to grate on God. It begins to wear his patience thin. And the godless, they're sent on God's mission. They go on their own mission and they collide with God. And when, they, when you collide with God, it's like a fly colliding with a freight train. God prevails. So, so here they are. The, 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 um, the king of Assyria is coming and, and he's full of his pride and it's beginning to grate on God. So verse 12, when the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. And then he starts to talk about what it is about the king of Assyria, what it is about his pride that grates on God. And it is the way that the man appropriates God's glory and God's traits to himself. Because look what he says, uh, verse 13. He says, By the strength of my hand I have done this, and by my wisdom, because I have understanding. No, it was God's power, not your own. It was God's understanding. And then he, he takes upon himself the rights and the prerogatives of God. Because look what he says. I removed the boundaries of nations. I plundered their treasuries. Like a mighty one, I subdued their kings. As if he has the right to take away a nation. As if he has the right to go in and empty their treasury and take it all for himself. He's just a thief. And, uh, and it irks him. Because God alone has those authorities and has those rights over nations. And he has granted these things to the king of Assyria. And then uh, he, he claims for himself the glory, the majesty of being someone who can wield massive power with great ease. And it's only God who can do that. And it's a miracle that the king of Assyria is being used in this way. But he doesn't give thanks to God, but he takes the glory for himself, Because look what he says in verse 14. As one reaches into a nest, so my hand reached for the wealth of the nations 
As men gather abandoned eggs, so I gathered all the countries. Not one flapped a wing or opened its mouth to chirp. And it grates on God. It wears his patience thin. Verse 15, God answers, Does the axe raise itself above him who swings it? Or the saw boast against him who uses it? What's happening is that this guy is taking God's power and he's acting like he wields it, that he controls it just because God has been you know, giving him ability and giving him the opportunity to accomplish the things that were in his heart. He thinks that he has God's power, that he's wielding God as if he could wield God. So um, as if a rod were to wield him who lifts it up or a club brandish him who is not wood. And God says enough, that's enough of that. And he puts an end to it. Um, it's like, you know, a thief who's boasting about his accomplishments and he doesn't realize the guy he's bragging to is wired for sound. And everything he says is just getting him deeper and deeper into trouble. And it's all being written down. It's all being written against him. And it's all going to come back to him. So, uh, do we have ever this kind of problem? Uh, do we ever uh, have a problem with pride? You know, it would be very hard to preach this passage about the world's sole superpower in the day of Isaiah and not somehow connect it to an audience like this who are, you know, citizens of the world's lone superpower in our day. Do we as a nation struggle with pride? Do we need to humble ourselves? How about as individuals in our lives when we succeed, when we get the things we want, we go off charging on our own purposes, on our own errands, and for whatever reason it pleases God to grant us success. And we think, oh, aren't I just great? I'm better than all those other people. And it stinks. God doesn't like it. And uh, what about us as a church? Do we need to hear this message and take it to heart and humble ourselves? You know, we're, we're in the midst of this, uh, this building project and there are these roadblocks put up and, you know, whatever the town board is, is asking us to do this or that or the other thing. I never get tired of those, those, uh, those people who want to stand up and say, you know what, we need to humble ourselves as a church. Because I know that we have that temptation constant to be proud and to put ourselves first and to assume that what we want is right and anybody who stands in our way is wrong. Uh, hey, we're that successful church. We're doing great. Everything we've tried you know, in the past has been successful and everything we're going to do in the future, it's all going to work. And hey, who are they to stand in our way? Ah, it's, it's a danger that we face as the people of God. And may God have mercy on us and give us humble hearts. So Habakkuk is dealing with these same things, these same issues. Uh, the Lord tells him, uh, you know, I'm going to bring the Babylonians. And Habakkuk says, you've got to be kidding. You've got to be kidding. You're going to bring the Babylonians. And so, verse 13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves. And so the Lord has an answer. And the Lord's answer over here, Habakkuk chapter 2, 
verses 12 to 14, it's going to come back on these guys with all their wickedness. Because God says, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Terrorists never succeed in building anything. Don't worry about them. Worry about us. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor, all these people, you know, who are building this evil empire, uh, that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God is going to act. He's going to reveal his, his power. He's going to reveal himself. So that's what we see here in verses uh, uh, 12, uh, where are we? Verse 16 through 19 at the end. So the Lord, the Lord Almighty will send a wasting disease upon his sturdy warriors. God is going to act. He's going to respond. When the fly hits the freight train, it's the freight train that wins. When the godless goes against God, when he collides with God, God's purpose prevails. And so God, when he takes on the king of Assyria, he doesn't use the usual strategy that we use for fighting an enemy and look for the weak points, the weakness of the enemy, and exploit that. But God takes on his very strength and strips it away from him and makes him into nothing. Because look what he does. He, uh, he takes away the strength of his army. He sends a wasting disease on his sturdy warriors. So the big, fat, strong warriors are going to be, become scrawny. Under his pomp, a fire will be kindled like a blazing flame. And there's some kind of play on words here because pomp rhymes with the word for, for the blazing and the burning. And, uh, and then the light of Israel will become a fire and the Holy One will become a flame. And so, you know, poor Israel's hanging on in the dark and trying to believe in God and all these terrible things are happening and they're trying to hold on and, oh God, you're our light in the darkness and all of a sudden this light is going to flash out like a, a, a blade of a sword and is going to attack and, and God is going to reveal himself in power against the wicked king of Assyria. And so it'll all happen in a single day, he says. It'll be sudden. Suddenly there will be a change in fortunes. And uh, this great massive army that's like a forest, so many trees, that's the image Isaiah uses, it'll be so few that a child can count them. God brings the change about all at once. The king of Assyria will be like a cartoon character in the Bugs Bunny cartoon, you know, he steals whatever it is from Bugs Bunny and he goes running off. He doesn't realize Bugs Bunny has given him one of those cartoon bombs with the burning fuse. And so he runs off and he jumps in his getaway car and he's cruising away. He's laughing. Ah, ha, ha, ha. And next frame, explosion. And here's the bad guy bouncing down the road, just holding a steering wheel, all black from, from head to foot. You know, there's nothing left of him. All at once, the king of Assyria is reduced to nothing. All his accomplishments blown up in his face. The very thing that he thought was his success turns against him and he loses it all. So if you'd look at the back of your sermon outline, uh, your sermon handout, when the bad do well, what do we do? Isaiah says somewhere here in, in chapter 10 that what Israel is supposed to do about this is do not be afraid. 
But here are some verses from other places in the Bible. What to do when the bad do well. Do not fret, it says in Psalm 37. Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they'll soon die away. Or uh, Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. So, um, because I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Don't envy the wicked when they prosper. And then another, another thing to do or not to do when the bad do well. Here is uh, Joshua on his face praying to God because the people of Israel, they've entered the promised land, they had one great victory and now they've had a defeat. And it looks terrible. It looks like all the nations are going to gather together and wipe them out. And, and so Joshua's praying, Lord, what are you doing? What are you going to do for your name? All these nations are going to hear about this. They're going to come and kill us off. And God says to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. And when the wicked prosper, it's time to look and say, could it be that God is using plan B against me? Could it be that God is disciplining me, treating me as a beloved son whom he chastises, whom he disciplines, whom he teaches? God has a plan A and we're called to be his people, his plan A people, to be his light, to take his good news into the world. God has a plan B and he'll use the wicked against his people. But aren't you glad that God has a plan C? That the Lord Jesus Christ came, the righteous one, receiving the punishment that was due us. Instead of just coming and disciplining us and chastising us, he came receiving our guilt upon himself and giving us his righteousness so that we can find hope in him. Do you hope in the Lord Jesus Christ? You've got to hang on to him because the ride is going to be harrowing, but you're going to be safe.